0: I'm doing a
1: dance,
0: because I got pesto in my pants.
2: I'm doing a dance.
0: Welcome to the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo Radio. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you to our YouTube watchers. We're excited to have you. And if you ever want to watch on YouTube, just pull it up at Tom Douglas Co. As you can hear, probably I have a little bit of a cold. We'll see if I have a voice by the time we finish today. Uh, we record the show on Thursday mornings. It is that just that. Here we have a few folks in our audience that are very loud and lively and starving to death. So they're waiting for their <laughs> delicious breakfast, which, which uh, comes with the, the ticket when you go to hotstovesociety.com. 25 bucks, right, Pam?
1: Yeah, what a deal. But one of our guests is Mary Waring, who entered the Mother's Day Stove Contest. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, Mary
0: Waring. And uh, so, thank you for coming. We appreciate you. Sean McFadden is our technical director, and you already heard Pamela Hinckley, our short term producer. She's moving on to greener pastures. And uh, what I'm most thrilled about with Pam, with you going, is that you have, uh, since you left our company, what, four years ago now or so, three years ago, uh, to retire yeah. essentially, COVID forced retirement, uh, you have been looking to help our community in a way that best suits uh, where your path in life is, yeah. and you found it.
1: I found it. It's yeah, you tried a fantastic. lot of different things,
0: and you found it. You're going to be the
1: executive director of what? Uh, the Pike Market Food Bank and Senior Center.
0: That is so perfect for you. you lived in the market business-wise. Congratulations. Your husband yes, has a can. business in the market. You've been yeah, passionate. It feels just right. And when you think about our market and what I love about it, as you know how I feel about the market, it's the heart and soul of our city. If you look at how Seattle came through COVID, Pike Place Market led the way. It's an outdoor market, number one. Totally. It just made sense. Yeah. But um, uh, the passion people have for that those th- three square blocks in our city uh, is unbelievable. And yeah. so I'm super thrilled for you. I'm super sad for us. If anyone wants to come be our producer, you just text me or email me.
3: <laughs> yeah, you can email the show anytime. At yeah. uh,
0: maybe we'll have a couple of guest producers. I'm going to produce a couple of shows myself. That's we, a good idea as we transition. But maybe right. we'll have a couple of guest producers. Just go to <laughs> Pam H at Tom Douglas for the next week and a half. <laughs> Tell her how much we're going to miss her. Exactly. So uh, we're sorry to see you go, but I am super thrilled for your for your ability to. Finally put that, hang your jacket where you wanted to, you know, because you're a passionate, lovely, thoughtful, communal person. Thank you. And uh, this, is, this is super cool. Uh, we're coming to you from the uh, beautiful Hotel Andra in downtown Seattle, 4th and Virginia. It's the home of Lola, our Greek-inspired restaurant, and it's across the street from Sirius Pie and Dahlia Bakery. So if that's a little... Landmark for you to come find us. We have lots of things that happen here at the hot stove on July 14th. We have pho broth soup dumplings. Uh, I love these. We, uh, Annie makes these, and they are so delicious. So delicious. And there's just some interesting little tricks about making soup dumplings that people, you know, sometimes people wonder, how do they get that broth inside that dough? Yeah. And uh, you, you can find out here on the 14th of July. July 15th, world-famous triple coconut cream pie class. And the 21st, we drink like a Venetian with Bridget and Julie, uh, which is dangerous. Teeth. I know, I would those say two that one's, together. That one sounds dangerous. Sean, like are you going to be here to for that. that one? I don't know. I don't, you don't know if you're scheduled yet. Oh, my God, that sounds dangerous. And the 29th, edible art, colorful pasta with our own Sean McFadden and artist collaborator, Lars LaDuke. Have you ever seen Lars teach a class? They did this one. We've done this one once. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh My goodness. He is a pistol. I would be anxious to see that. We have a large show for you today, Daniel Schindler, a respected salmon scientist. We're hoping to make that connection. You know, there's been a lot of chatter, uh, a big uh, op-ed in the Seattle Times, a lot of chatter about Chinook salmon or the king salmon and whether we or not we should be eating it. And, you know, I don't like to jump on bandwagons. And so I like to hear from real scientists about uh, what the process is and whether it. We're making a difference or not by not eating the salmon. So we're inviting a real scientist on to talk about the Southeast Alaska Chinook salmon troll fishery. Uh, We welcome Jessica Stetcher. Stetcher. Stetcher is going to be on the mic from Charlie's Produce. And today we're going to talk berries, a little bit about her farm life. You know, people don't always end up in the profession that they also have a passion for privately, you know. You just sometimes you go do your job and you come back, but she lives the farm. Life. I was
3: once a uh, working on masonry, so yes, you're right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is that true? You were
3: laying that bricks. That is true. Laying I was in between while. two jobs and I wow helped carry bricks. My hometown, brick I helped the mason build some you know cement block and cement yeah. and, and build up the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Awesome.
0: True. You know, I mean, when you walk into the grocery store and you see the array of berries this time of year, it's overwhelming. So yeah. we're going to kind of dissect that a little bit. Wine bar owner David Clausen is here to explain their self pour tasting bar rapport, and Pam challenges us to take challenges us to take potato salad to the next. Yeah. Level. I will say thank you to all of those who came out last Wednesday. You know, we did the uh, benefit for the. Um, I can never say the name of the restaurant. I I Iruba, the lady who got killed here in the, on Fourth and Lenora, um, and we did it uh, the benefit for, Quan uh, um, family for the family uh, this last Wednesday, and we had donated twenty percent along with uh, other restaurateurs around town, including Eth and Renee, and just a ton of people jumped in and. I believe we raised uh, more than $25,000 for her family. Oh,
3: congratulations. Try,
0: and thanks to you, and thanks to a member of our audience who came on last Wednesday night.
3: It was fantastic. The dinner was delicious. Yeah. Kathy had the artichoke again. It was fantastic. I love that artichoke.
0: <laughs> you just don't see it on videos anymore. It was really anymore. good. Yeah. No, it was, it was delicious. Well, thanks to everyone who came out. Um, I know personally our restaurants did a little over uh, almost $12,000 in, in raising cash for the family. And we thanks everyone. And, of course, uh, we're going to finish the show by playing Rub With Love Tasty Trivia, brought to you by my very own Spice Line, Rub With Love Spices and Sauces. Chef, what is your taste of the week? Oh, my taste of the week. A wonderful vanilla cherry clafouti. It's so funny because that was my taste, except mine was a Dutch baby. Same idea.
3: Same idea. Yeah, mine was better though,
0: because <laughs> my, my wife so. made it. Uh, Jackie made ours too. <laughs> <laughs> so. Kathy made
3: this cherry clafouti. We haven't done a cherry clafouti in our house in probably two years. To give you an idea, we
0: didn't or pit out. That's the real question. To,
3: to give pit out. To give you an idea, we actually didn't have the pan. We had to. She had to go to. She went to a store in, on. But still, there in the morning. I um, mean, on the 4th of July, to go get two pans because we didn't have any more pans of those. We p- probably tossed them sometime. I don't know. Anyway, it's been a couple of years. I had taish and vanilla beans in the freezer. I tell you, those cherries, those bean cherries were just Those fabulous. beautiful
1: uh, Yumi cherries from Charlie's? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. You chose the right one.
3: Yes, pitted and um, absolutely fantastic. So flour and sugar together, vanilla beans uh, broken down into the egg, and we used duck egg, six duck eggs. Uh-huh. Top, tap, 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 You just foam them up a little bit. Mix into the, uh, the the flour and sugar. Vanilla bean specks in there. So you, you scrape the vanilla beans. Let it rest 10, 15 minutes. Pour it over the cherry into the dish no dough involved and bake it for about 45 minutes to an hour and bingo bango Bob's your uncle All you right. get a wonderful pie on your hand
0: sounds delicious ours was a rainier cherry Dutch baby so the cherries galore we got them yeah. after the show last week Charlie's left a bunch of Yumi cherries oh, yeah. Y-U-M-I look for that brand and uh, it was super fun to have them and we ate them alright Cultivating Fresh our new weekly segment focused on the Northwest Produce in part, is in partnership with Charlie's Produce and today we're happy to meet Jessica so when that Happens. We'll be back we on Cairo radio on 973 FM.
2: We through They furnished off an apartment with a two-
0: Welcome back, it's the Hot Stove Society Show in Cairo Radio, and we're cultivating fresh our new weekly segment focused on Northwest Produce is in partnership with Charlie's Produce, and today we are happy to meet Jessica Stetcher, she's the lead berry buyer for Charlie's Produce, and if you don't know who Charlie's is, you see their trucks all over the Northwest, right? They're, they're just ubiquitous. I see them on my way to and from our farm over in eastern Washington. And um, every kind of category has a buyer because they're so big, right? So if you want, you have the potato and onion buyer, you've got the, the wet veg buyer, you've got blah, blah, blah. Jessica here, who's at the mic right now, is the lead berry buyer. How do you get this job? I would think that everyone in the world would want this job. Yeah, I'm jealous.
4: Um, well you apply apply <laughs> and then you just start showing your potential of what you would like to do and uh-huh. express your desires and as soon as you start showing that you can do it and are able to manage high stress, high uh-huh.
0: volume, you can kind of do what you want to do. That's awesome. Dream big. You know, one of my favorite things about Charlie's is that it's employee owned and uh, I I just love that Charlie did that a long time ago and um, so you have, you're you invested in this in a way that uh, maybe some people aren't in other jobs. But you're also invested because you were a farmer in your, in your other life, in your, you know, your non-work life in the past.
4: I did. I, uh, my great-grandfather um, lived with us when we were younger. And um, he was very much a vegetable grower, loved farming. And so I went side-by-side side with him and did a lot of the growing with him and picking. And that's how much... That's where we actually got to spend our time was uh-huh. in the fields picking and planting. and You and him. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: And did you form an unbelievable bond? We
4: absolutely did. Uh, we absolutely did. It yeah. was very beautiful.
0: And now you said you have a garden growing on the side of your house that's kind of taking over your house. Like it you, is. You walk is. into a, uh, a pumpkin house now.
4: I kind of do, yeah. <laughs> I have to constantly pull it out of my tomato plants and everything uh-huh. and try to retrain it to go somewhere else.
0: Awesome. So So let's talk berries. Since you're the lead berry buyer, when you walk into a store, Terry, you know Met Market. You walk in the Met Market right now. You, there are so many berries right now. So the first thing that I look for is local, because there are California berries still, you know, populating the aisles. So I try to search out immediately what looks local, and then I just everything's got a tag. So, we, we focus on local berries. And then it's hard to decide. Pamela, you're most interested in gooseberries, which uh, it's a little early for gooseberries, or not? It is.
4: No, we do have gooseberries. You have already. them already? Oh, huh, yes, yeah. from Sterino.
0: From Sterino Farms, which yes. is right up in Mount Vernon, right? Yeah.
4: No, Sterino's in Puyallup.
0: Puyallup, so I've got the wrong, wrong end of the. Wrong direction. It's okay. Area.
4: <laughs> so, <laughs> you've, you've got close. gooseberries, currants,
0: and blueberries right now?
4: We have gooseberries, currants, marion berries, tayberries. Blueberries are coming out of Oregon soon to transition into Washington. Um, And then we start boysenberries next week. And then we have red raspberries and gold raspberries.
0: Yeah, see, exactly my point. I can't even keep track of what she's saying. (laughs) You can't even keep track of your berries. What's going on here? (laughs) They sound very delicious, don't they, Chef? I don't know if you noticed, but Chuck Berry let us into this segment. Yes. Exactly. All right, let's talk about some of these then. So do you have a favorite of all the berries that you buy?
4: So this year was my first year actually trying a Marion berry. Um, and I have to say, Marionberries are probably my favorite now. Really? Yes. What makes it so? They're just very sweet and easy to eat. Yeah,
3: I think I, I'm surprised it's your first year doing Marionberry because there's a lot around here.
4: There is a lot around here, but yeah. it's actually my first official year of buying bush berries on this side. Um,
2: uh-huh. Charlie's.
4: We had Mike Manilia who. Manilia, who used to work for Charlie's, he retired, and I took over this category for him. So Uh, this is my
0: first official year Uh doing it. And what is a Marionberry? It's a cross. Other than Maid Marion, we all know about her.
4: It's so it originated in Oregon. I don't remember the exact breeds, but it's a blackberry mixed with a raspberry, I Uh believe. And so it tends to have more of a darker color to it, but sometimes they're a little bit dark red. Uh, the darker the color, the better the flavor. If it's I, light color, it's not going to be yeah, good. Yeah, and I think
3: you're right. They're sweeter than the regular blackberry.
4: Yes, absolutely. Really? Yeah, they make, they make great jam. They do, but they're also really good for fresh eating.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, blackberries, they grow in my backyard. Why is it so special to get them from Charlie's?
4: Because they're actually different. I know they are. <laughs> wild blackberries
0: don't taste the same as. No, they don't. Uh, you know. wild blackberries are interesting, but they're so soft and mushy, and mm-hmm. yeah, uh, that's so true. Uh, but it's worth buying a, reg- a regular cultivated blackberry then. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And what, you know, sometimes you see them like black cap, blackberries or regular blackberries. The black cap is a
3: smaller, much smaller, and wild blackberry style, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. It's, not, it's not like a blackberry But berry. they're pretty intense Oh yeah, they're intense for sure And they yeah. have more, much
4: more little seeds in the black cap. Yeah,
0: exactly You see, it's hard to resist golden raspberries Are they worth it? Mm.
4: They're very mild, which is uh-huh. great So if you don't want that big bang of raspberry Unch, flavor yeah. They're more mild mm-hmm. um, I think they taste good on top of like a little vanilla ice
0: cream uh, What's a nectar berry? Because that's something that was new to me on your list of raspberries and berries that you sell so
4: nectarberries, uh, Sterino actually grows the nectarberries, and they're they're definitely I think they're close, more similar to a Marion berry. They're sweeter berry.
0: Okay, and the, you say you said Sterino twice now. So these are local farms that Charlie contracts with. Yes. So tell me about that. How do you do that? How do you make that relationship? Because, I mean, you've got to be calls. a very important <laughs> customer for these farmers.
4: You do a lot of phone calls. Uh-huh. Um, Sam Spooner, who we do a lot of uh, bush berries with, too, I talk to him probably six days, six times a day. Really? Um, oh, wow. Yeah, phone calls until like 4 or 5 at night, which uh-huh. is fun. He's And you start at 6
0: a.m. probably.
4: Um, he called me at 5.15 this morning, so, <laughs> you know, early. Yeah. Um, what is building. he saying? What's the urgency
1: in six times a day?
4: Jessica, I messed up on your order. I forgot to do these. I forgot to do this. Hey, we're short on this. Oh, wait. Is your truck coming to get the product? I, I haven't seen your truck. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of that, but a lot of also, I'm coming on to a lot of product. Can you please help me? How do we figure out how to move more volume? Uh huh. Um, which is actually working out really well for us this year because raspberries have been a train wreck out of California. Um, and they're coming onto to huge production here locally, and they're able to pack them in a 12,6 ounce for us. So we're able to move the volume that they need help moving. Right. So Perfect. it's been really awesome.
0: So that's an interesting part of your relationship as a buyer is to. Not just uh, go to the farmer and say, what do you have, but what do you need help with? Because yes. uh, that makes a huge difference, Chef, as you know, yes, of uh, in e- the economy of the, the crop, right? right. If, you have, if you lose 20% of your crop because you couldn't move it or whatever, or look at the cherries in eastern Washington right now sitting on trees, um, that's a huge help to the, to the farmer.
2: Yes.
3: And also, you're weather dependent no matter what. Mother nature doesn't always work friendly. <laughs> definitely doesn't Especially like in california like you were saying all of central california got inundated this winter this spring so they yeah. lost a lot of crops so
4: they did actually our strawberry season was a lot less yeah this I year that. too yeah. locally um
0: it was was that from the cool spring
4: well and then it rained really hard in june uh-huh. for like yeah. a week solid yeah. and that just basically finished it up and Wipe then in spring out. uh tree house up north she's in mount vernon she had a Uh, Basically, the fields were flooded out, and she lost her strawberry crops Uh because of that, and she does organic. um, Oh, no.
0: That's why these farmers often, uh, probably not everyone, but they often have a variety of crops so that when they lose one, another one picks up some of the slack. Like, may have lost the strawberries, but her blueberries might be doing okay. I don't know what she grows, so I'm just saying She does
4: do blueberries. Yeah, and uh, she has the best ones.
0: It's uh, it's just part of the deal. (laughs) So tell us a few of the stories uh, Charlie's is supplying that people can find this array of berries that you're buying
4: we are selling to Orcas Island Met Market Frank's Produce in the Market Ken's Market in Greenwood Burt's and Hilltop Red Apples Wachamaya Red Barn and Puyallup and Vashon Thriftway
0: Jessica Stetcher thank you so much for joining us for this uh, berry delicious segment thank you <laughs> come on that was funny <laughs> uh, and, uh, and we look forward to seeing uh, Charlie's next week here in the kitchen here at Hot Stove can we eat wild salmon and still protect the Orcas let's find out when we come back On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stokes Chat Show 973 FM.
5: Nothing is real, but nothing to get hung about.
0: Strawberry feels forever. Your hands to the side, as silly as it seems, they shake your body like a
4: salmon floating upstream.
0: Right, we're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen here in downtown Seattle. Thanks for joining us. Uh, please feel free anytime time to, uh, if you're watching us live on YouTube, you can put in a, into chat a message to Sean McFadden. And then uh, if you want to uh, email us, you just go to Pamela h at TomDouglas.com. Uh, our next guest is Daniel Schindler. He's from the University of Washington Alaska Salmon Program. And, you know, there's been a lot of chatter, Chef, about whether or not we should be eating uh, wild king salmon. Uh, I know us as a company uh, have decided to not eat anything south of Alaska, any wild Chinook salmon south of Alaska, right. but uh, we have always felt that Alaska and the orca population up in Alaska has been, is fine and is, it's able to get some king salmon from Alaska if we chose to. Uh, There was a big uh, editorial in the Seattle Times uh, a couple weeks ago now uh, talking about that uh, even – it was by the Wild Fish Conservancy lawsuit against southeast Alaska king salmon trollers that put out the messaging that uh, proclaiming eating salmon equals killing whales, uh, which is creating a vast divide among salmon conservationists. And, you know, I feel like – While I believe that eating salmon is creating an economy around the fish, which is necessary in order to provide uh, natives jobs in Alaska, but it has to be managed properly in order to continue this process, right? Most
3: importantly importantly for the survival of the salmon.
0: Yeah, and and managed correctly, and that um, by creating an economy around the fish, we are creating a more uh, situation where we can keep it and keep it in in a system, so to speak. So, um, lots and lots of uh, yelling and shouting about this whole editorial. Uh, I'm not one to kind of jump on a bandwagon, so we asked uh, a professional to come on, a scientist, Daniel Schindler, from the University of Washington, and to tell us about, well, I guess basically, is that true, is eating salmon killing whales? Which I don't personally think is is that simple. Well, it's not that simple. There's yeah. no way it can be and that so simple. So let's let's jump in with Daniel. And uh, good good morning, Daniel. Thank you for joining our show. Good morning.
2: Yeah, good morning, Tom. And uh, thanks for the invitation.
0: So you've I'm sure read this um, this uh, op-ed or editorial. I'm not sure which one it was. Uh, where where sh- what should we be thinking as uh, people here in Seattle and in the world, humanity, about eating salmon, specifically Chinook? And uh, how should we be approaching this, this conversation?
2: Yeah, it's a good question, and there's probably no simple answer to it because it has a lot of complexities to it. I mean, I think the first message is one that you've promoted and you continue to promote, which is we should be asking, where does our food come from? And is it coming from sources that are sustainable and healthy and and economical? Um, In the case of salmon on the West Coast, they've always been a great uh, choice for people who love to eat fish and who love to eat good good food. Uh, In the case of the Chinook salmon killer whale narrative and all the surrounding issues associated with it. I think there's one piece of the story that's really critical for people to understand that's really been missing from this narrative. I'm, I'm in Bristol Bay, Alaska right now with somewhat limited uh, communication, so I have not read the op-ed that you referred to, but I know the issues associated with uh, with that story. Anyhow, the narrative that I think needs to change a little bit is people need to realize that the number of resident killer whales in the northeast pacific has tripled since the 1970s that the passage of the marine mammal protection act and and similar protections in canada have allowed these populations to literally explode so what we hear in seattle and vancouver and and san francisco is is really about the plight of the southern residents um, which are fish-eating whales and there's now i think around 80 or maybe a few less whales and they are doing poorly it's very clear but when we expand that to the whole coast from Northern California through Alaska, we need to realize there's over a thousand resident killer whales, and they're probably on the order of 1,200. In fact, and uh, in the mid 70s, there were only about 400 of them. That's so dramatic. That's the backdrop of what yeah. we're talking about here.
3: So those are definitely uh, pluses number. I mean, it's yeah. It's, I mean, it's nice to hear that the population of orcas has come back and. And actually, been very, very, very big. I mean, it's it's amazing.
0: Daniel, is there a number we should be hoping for for the population of orcas? Uh, is is I mean, just because there's 1,200 doesn't mean that that's plenty. Uh, is there what's the historic population numbers?
2: We don't really know what the historic number of killer whales might have been. Again, I'm not a whale biologist per se, but yeah. I know enough to tell you some general facts. Um, you know, we also need to consider that not all killer whales eat salmon. Uh, there's the transient killer whales, which are more mammal-eating whales that are a little farther offshore typically, but some of them are moving inshore. They're also doing well. Uh, the, the residents are the ones that we're concerned about that eat salmon. Um, how many there quote-unquote should be? We don't know. But what we do know is that the populations that are there now, that are present now, are growing at somewhere on the order of 2 or 3% per year, which says they're not near carrying capacity. They are, you know, for an animal that's that large and, and that old, uh, the populations are growing still in an exponential way.
0: It's growing great. faster than the population of Japan or the USA. I can tell you that. <laughs> so, so
3: I have a question. What you said there is about eighty wells that are not healthy. Because, southern residents. Yeah, southern yeah. resident. What, do we know why they're not healthy?
2: Yeah, the question of why the southern residents are not doing well is is up for debate. There are probably many reasons that contribute to it. Um, it is clear that there are not as many Chinook salmon, which is their distinctly preferred prey. Uh, there's not as many Chinook salmon available to them as there used to be. Um, there's been some recent evidence that genetically they're somewhat inbred, and that may be contributing to some of their Poor, uh, poor, birth rates recently. Uh, we also know there's contaminants and there's harassment from noisy boats and whatnot. So they're probably pigeonholed somewhat because they're suffering from a from a, a set of threats. Too close to civilization would be a good argument to make. That's certainly part of the argument, but I guess it's you know I'm going to double down on my opening argument, and that is that another threat to the southern residents are the northern residents. And the Alaska resident killer whales, which eat the same fish that Southern residents do, because a lot of the the salmon that migrate down along the coast and eventually make it uh, make themselves available to Southern residents, have to swim through this gauntlet of other resident killer whales, which are literally eating millions of big Chinook salmon every year. So you know, in the in the conservation community, we often th- sort of imagine that under strong conservation measures everything does well but of course that's simply not possible because species interact with each other and in the case of chinook salmon and and resident killer whales killer whales eat them and in the case of killer whales more specifically different killer whale populations certainly compete with each other and that's part of the story that's missing is that northern residents and Alaska's resident killer whales are probably competing with our southern residents because they eat a lot of the same food.
0: And what? Where do the sea lions fit into this mix? You often hear this down in this in this part of the world about the sea lions say at the Hiram Locks or or where? Where do they and 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 the, the actual fish ladder and locks themselves come into play here?
2: Yeah, the, the question of sea lions and harbor seals; those species as well have have benefited in a very dramatic way from the the federal protections we've we've allowed for them and their numbers have also exploded particularly california sea lions and and harbor seals and both of those species also eats eat salmon including some chinook salmon but the difference between them and the killer whales is that the the Sea lions and the harbor seals are typically eating smaller fish. They're eating the Chinooks and, and coho and, and other species of salmon at smaller uh, life stages. In the case of the uh, killer whales, they are very selective for the biggest, largest, juiciest uh, Chinook. So in an evolutionary sense and in a reproductive sense for the population, the 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 resident killer whales actually have a much bigger impact than the other that also eat these fish.
0: Interesting. So uh, when we come back, let's talk about uh, some of the uh, uh, the Tlingit and the Haida uh, people's uh, relationship with the salmon and uh, how this lawsuit between Wild Fish Conservancy and and these uh, Southeast Alaska King Salmon Trollers uh, is uh, kind of separating two very uh, eco-conscious plans I will say.
3: Yeah it's on a ca- it's the supporter.
0: Yeah on camera radio it's the hot stove society show 973 FM <laughs> <laughs> We're back in the kitchen here at the Hot Stove. We're having a, an interesting conversation with Daniel Schindler from the University of Washington, Alaska Salmon Program. Uh, Daniel is up in Bristol Bay right now. Last time I tried to get into Bristol Bay, we circled three times on Alaska Airlines and then had to go back to Anchorage. It was just, oh, it was too... Too chubby? not nah, too uh, cloudy, foggy, whatever. Mm-hmm. It seems to happen a lot up there. Daniel, uh, we were talking uh, before the break about uh, the the need for king salmon and um, wild orcas, especially the southern resident population, to kind of coexist uh, with the fisheries. And uh, there's, uh, it's more than that. So, Pam, will you read this little note uh, that was put in the Seattle Times? And re- I think it was in response to the op-ed in the Seattle Times.
1: Yeah, the reason we wanted to hear from Daniel is because the kerfuffle between the Wild Fish Conservancy lawsuit against... Um, the Southeast salmon trollers doesn 't it seems very specific and doesn 't talk about the whole health of the salmon population and um, we wanted to hear more, yeah. which is why we invited Daniel we to educate to, ourselves so Daniel, help us understand how the Wild Fish Conservancy
0: brought this about yeah I wanted you to read that from the um, Tinglet and Haida peoples the note that they sent to the Seattle Times. Uh, since
1: time immemorial, the Tinglet and Haida people have lived in relationship with the uh, salmon and the killer whale. They feed us and protect us, and in return we have been their stewards for generations, and yet we are in the crosshairs of the Wild Fish Conservancy lawsuit that attempts to address southern resident whale killer declines in the Pacific Northwest by shutting down the southeast Alaska Chinook salmon troll fishery. This misguided lawsuit is a direct assault on our culture, our traditional ways of life, and threatens our communities. Yikes! That is throwing down the oh, I gauntlet. Just think it's, not,
0: it's part of what doesn't get talked about sometimes. It's just a matter of whether you catch the fish or you don't catch the fish, and it's a bigger, bigger conversation. Bigger. Daniel, you're in the middle of this, if I'm not mistaken.
2: <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think I'm in the middle of it, but I certainly have expertise and have worked on some of the topics that uh, bear relevance to it. Yeah.
0: So can you tell us about some of that side of the the question, I guess?
2: Yeah, I guess there are several ways to think about the problem um, that are relevant to people who haven't been involved with the troll fishery. Um, You know, the simple-minded thing to do with salmon is to think that the fish that you see swimming up a river or the fish that um, is caught at a river mouth was part of the local ecosystem and what we know for sure with with particularly chinook salmon but really all the species of salmon is they migrate very widely up and down the coast and most of the uh, chinook that are the focus of today's conversation um, swim up the coast and and put a lot of their growth on in the Gulf of Alaska so the ocean is actually a pretty small place for these animals as mentioned in the in the note that was just read is those fish have been harvested by both people and by other animals up and down the coast for as long as these species have been around another dimension of the question is that fisheries are often an easy villain because we see people catch fish and harvest fish and it's it's an easy finger to point uh, with and the reality is Fishing communities are often among the most conservation-conscious communities there are. People aren't in it to make a quick dollar. We know that because families have been doing this for generations, that people typically fish with the idea that they want to maintain the resource and maintain their livelihood and cultures for generations into the future. So it's it's grossly unfair to villainize a, a relatively small fishery Um, because of a problem that is being expressed elsewhere. In the case of Chinook, I think we will make a mistake if we paint too rosy a picture for the status of Chinook salmon. It is true that Chinook populations currently are down right now along most of the coast compared to where they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. And Um, Some of that may be climate warming. Some of that is certainly part of this issue with growing populations of of killer whales that are eating many of them and, and really selective for the largest fish. But what people don't realize in many cases is that the number of fish that are harvested by commercial fisheries has been slowly declining through time. And that's through reforms to fisheries. You know, fisheries in North America, particularly for salmon, are typically Uh, adaptive. They uh, They involve assessments of the status of the populations and pretty rigorous questions about what is sustainable in terms of harvest. So in this period of time where the predation rates by killer whales has increased exponentially, the number of fish that are harvested by commercial fisheries has actually dropped off drastically. And that's been through reforms to fisheries management. And I'm not trying to paint a picture that the southern residents are not doing well. That is very clear. Um, but I think to pretend that shutting down a relatively small fishery in Alaska is going to save the southern residents is really too, much too simplistic a perspective and culturally, economically, and socially an unfair imposition on on people from southeast Alaska.
0: And so what essentially you're saying is that um, the uh, wild fish conservancy lawsuit that uh, – kind of breaks it down to eating king salmon equals killing whales you're saying it's just too simplistic to to kind of live with it has to be a other situ- other conversation there
2: I mean it is clear that if uh, a fish a fishery takes away the potential for that fish to make it into the mouth of a southern resident killer whale but most fish that would not be caught by fisheries would probably be eaten by killer whales elsewhere along the fish's migratory route back to the sailor sea for instance so pretend to pretend that a fish saved from a fishery feeds a a, a killer whale somewhere else is is we know that's a scientifically implausible assumption so so for context the you know best estimates of the number of uh, chinook salmon eaten by resident killer whales along the coast is about two and a half million uh, large chinook salmon a year
0: out of a population is there an estimate of the population
2: So if you add up all of the Chinook, the big Chinook, because um, killer whales don't really touch them until they get to 20, 25, even 30 pounds, add up all those uh, uh, fish, it's about two and a half million a year. The southeast troll fishery catches maybe 200,000 right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a tiny fraction of what the whales are eating along the coast. Interesting. Well, I'm
0: sure the conversation is going to continue, Chef. Absolutely.
3: And, and I think, uh, but I think it's very important not to make this a black and white story of, like Daniel pointed out, to be a uh, salmon versus fishery. You know, it's like you can't – we have to look further into this before we make the knife cut in half anything. So I think it's important. It's not black and white. It's definitely – plenty of options to look at.
0: Thank you, Daniel Schindler from the University of Washington Alaska Salmon Program. appreciate your expertise, and I'm sure we'll have um, some corresponding follow-up with this, uh, whether it's with Daniel or another viewpoint when we come back. Uh, But science is the key. Yeah. And... um, I believe in science, so we're going to go from there. Uh, Thank you, Daniel. Uh, Have a good time up there in Bristol Bay. I know it's beautiful
2: this time of year. It's been awfully wet this year, but, uh, yeah, thanks for the invitation to participate today.
0: Up next, uh, we're going to welcome David Clausen, owner and wine curator of Rapport. Wine Bar in town on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society show, 97.3 FM.
1: In the morning, laughing happy fish heads. In the evening, floating in the soup. Fish have loves-
0: The Hot Stove Society show. We're smack in the middle of the kitchen here today with a lovely audience who is sated, sated with a breakfast of uh, Spanish tortilla, some chorizo sausages, and a little braising green mix of uh, escarole, chard, and kale, uh, topped off with a little bit of our uh, taco, fish taco spice. And so. not
3: to forget the wonderful blueberry muffin.
0: And the blueberry muffin, exactly. So so delicious. Thank you, chef, for, uh, for breakfast. And are you still hungry, or would you like a glass of wine to wash it all down with? Uh, let's have a little taste of wine, why don't we? Uh, we're going to welcome David Kloss, owner and wine curator of Rapport, which is a new wine bar up on Capitol Hill.
1: Yeah, you inherited that beautiful space at the north end. and uh, have Which space? It used to be the Starbucks store. Correct, actually
5: a secret Starbucks. The Roy Sto- The store? That's it, Roy's Street Coffee and Tea. That's where you are? That's where we are. Oh, Beautiful. So not much more coffee and tea, much more wine yeah. and great food, so that wasn't kind of stuff.
3: It, wasn't it the first Starbucks that tried to do wine, too, at nighttime?
5: That's right.
1: Yeah. right.
5: I remember so that. There was, there was a little heritage there yeah, for yeah, yeah. Yeah, continuation.
1: So you did a beautiful job. I peeked in the window yesterday uh, <laughs> to see how you transformed the space. And it's, uh, it's very friendly to approach because you've got the wine barrels outside. And it says that you've designed the space to be... Real mingly. Well, I think people. the key
5: words that you already said were friendly and approachable because that's kind of our whole idea with wine is to make it fun, you know, and not make it ponzi or anything like that, just uh, let people do what they want. And so we're quite unique. The only place, or well, the first place in Seattle, there's I think one or two others that have opened po- past us where people can serve their own wine. Basically, you get a rapport card and then they can pour what they like from 80 wines on tap so a huge variety, wines from all around the world. Eighty wines on tap. This wines is on tap.
1: amazing. We actually
5: wanted to do hundred, but we fell slightly short. <laughs> we put some. We put space, some it's we, called we, space. Well, it's called space, and we put some t- self serve beer taps in as well. Okay. Uh, so Good we have that. Right, right. You want to cover the bases. We do some cocktails also, but yeah, no wine is what we're really about. And, it's and, just, and it's, we just
0: need to add one scotch. Uh, Crouvenet to the mix, too. So. <laughs>
5: if we could. <laughs> believe me, we would. So actually, uh, Terry was asking about the laws a little bit earlier, and so it's interesting. There are some states allow self-pouring, self-serving, whatever you, want, whatever you want to call it. Others don't. Washington does, but only for wine and beer, not for spirits. I want to hear more about the
1: mechanics. So you, uh, when I enter, I'm going to get a card before I go up to the tap and... That's Choose right. my pour. How yeah, does that work? It's, it's
5: almost like a, you know, a credit card, but it's linked for us. And you basically, it basically just tracks what you pour. So you can choose whatever you want. You, on the wine side, you can get like a one-ounce pour, a three-ounce pour, kind of like a half glass or, or a five-ounce glass. So a lot of variety. And a lot of people, you know, what I like to see is when you see people with like five you know, or more wine glasses in front of them, and they're just taking little one-ounce taster pours, and, you know, it's like a little journey, you might say, mm-hmm. through yeah. the wine world. And that's, that's really the, the idea.
3: That's my kind of drinking. <laughs> More tasting
1: than drinking.
5: Yes, me too. Me too.
1: Are, do, do you have... Um, how do people choose um, with such a large selection? Do you curate any of the journeys
5: for them? Yeah, but, it's a good question. So, we, actually, recently we started doing some, doing some things called, like, Wine Trails where it's like, hey, you like, say, Sauvignon Blanc. Well, start here, try this one, and then here's three or four other suggestions, maybe some more Sauvignon Blancs, but maybe some things that are a little bit left of field or whatnot. Um, you know, we cover everything from really classic wines to kind of the more esoteric. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big variety, and yeah, you can kind of get lost. We have tasting notes for all the wines, of course, on both you know, on paper and then online, too. So that's kind of fun. And then finally, we even did recently a little wine quiz where it's like, for people who really don't know much... Um, it's like, okay, well, give us your favorite cocktail. And then maybe, maybe we'll go take, take a different way from that. Or tell us your favorite cuisine. Oh, you like Thai food. Okay, so maybe you want something that's like a little bit spicier, a little bit you know, zippier kind of style of wine. So that's kind of a little avenue you can take. So we've done, we try to make it, again, like just make it fun, make it approachable, engaging. That's what we're about. And how did you come to the wine industry? I am a local boy. I grew up in Seattle, but I moved away for 25 years. Spent a lot of that time actually in London. In London, I had an old job, involved lots of ties and that kind of nature, but I was always into wine. So, so I started kind of working part-time for a little importer or distributor in London. Then that kind of grew and grew, and then the, the real job kind of went down, 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 and so fi- then I finally made the transition. And having spent actually a little bit of time in, living in Paris, I kind of fell in love with all these really cute little wine bars, bar de vins. And I was like, oh, okay, that's what I want to do. So I ended up opening a little wine bar in London, still there, called The Remedy. Great little spot if you ever find yourself in Fitzrovia. And around that time, I had a good friend from school in London who opened up a wine shop. And his whole idea was that you could try any wine before you bought it. And to do that, he had these, you know, Koubenet or, you know, type dispensers. It was interesting because it was a wine shop, and so he only had little taster pours. And it took some time for, I think, you know, all the wheels to turn and the light bulbs to go off, but he ultimately realized that it would make a really cool, much cooler wine bar concept than it would make a wine shop concept, even though you know, he, like us, we, do, we also do retail. So you, know, you can come in and try some wines and be like, oh, that's great, I want to buy those bottles to go. and That works really cool. Um, but you know, it's really the wine bar side that for him kind of took off in London, and when I decided to come back to Seattle with my family, you know, I could see that no one was doing that concept here, and it was, and it's you know, it was a super cool idea, and you know, I love the traditional kind of more classic Parisian wine bar, but I also love this idea. And it's just, it's just so engaging for people. It's, you know, yeah,
3: it's I think the freedom is very engaging. I think that's very cool to walk into a place where there's uh, 80 wines available, but. You don't know. So you're like, how do I start this? And,
5: and, and also 80 wines that you know are going to be in good condition. So I right. think that's, I mean, I've been to, you know, there are places that have a lot of wine open, to be fair. But, eh, you know, sometimes yeah. they're just open, sitting on the bar open, in the open. fridge. Yeah, yeah, open, open, yeah. yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So these, these systems are actually originally designed as preservation devices. That they, you know, they use argon gas, which is the most inert gas on earth. It kind of keeps the wine in good condition. And also that's what creates the, the, the kind of the taps vacuum mm-hmm. system. And so you know that when you're getting a glass pour, and, and to be honest, you know, as I said, we have a huge range, including wines that have gone up to $100 a glass. So, you know, if you're going to dr- pay that kind of money, you know, you're going to want something... You want, want to something. be fresh. Granted, that was a very old, you know, like That's, 1981 Mar- Margot, so it was yeah. not a bad wine. That's, not That's a
0: also bug- kind of what turned people off the wine bars in the very beginning of wine bars is that they came off as snooty, whereas yours is coming off as... as uh, good for anybody
3: instead of starting from the top you start from the bottom which, exactly. is, which is a good we idea we have to take
0: a quick break though um, Columbia Gorge Wineries are going to be featured at your wine bar at Rapport uh, absolutely coming up and we'll talk about that in the next segment on Cairo Radio it's the hot stove Society, time 3 at Here in the hot stove, David Clawson is our guest from Rapport, uh, which is a wine bar, eighty tap self pour wine bar on Capitol Hill, in a comfortable mingling space. You say it's Rory and Broadway, is that the correct? The, right. So it's process? basically
5: where we're north end of Broadway. Where it does that why? Yeah. We're in that little building there. All right. It's
3: very simple. If you drive Broadway on Capitol Hill. Going you run low, into it. And you just <laughs> keep driving straight. You're going to run you right into it. go to the front door <laughs> of that
0: place. It opened in the fall we'll of 2020. It offers uh, each wine in a one, three, or five-ounce pour. They're all properly stored. They're wines from around the world. And ten beers on a self-pour tap also. The menu is uh, created by Mike Law, formerly of Sitka and Spruce, Bourbon and Bones, Wandering Goose. He only works in restaurants with two names. <laughs> <laughs> very Very true. <laughs> Except for Rapport. Um, So, David, you have a big event coming up uh, from the Columbia Gorge wineries.
5: Correct. Right. So on July 23rd, we're going to do a cool kind of almost old-fashioned wine fair that, you know, this is the kind that you used to see in France and places where winemakers are standing around pouring wine for for guests and customers. And I really um, kind of became enamored with the Columbia Gorge when I got back on my European excursions as a place that kind of reminded me a little bit more of what was happening in Europe. So you have a lot of winemakers who are also wine growers, and you know they're really doing the whole cycle of a vineyard, you might say, where you're know, growing the grapes, making the wine. Um, that's, uh, that model is kind of what is less prevalent, I would say, overall in the United States. Um, but in the Columbia Gorge, you're starting to see that more and more. And it's just a kind of an exciting wine region, for both Washington. It kind of covers the Washington and Oregon side, but it's maybe a bit more on the Washington. And we have some really cool wines which I brought with us. And so we're going to have again like those winemakers on the 23rd of July, um, just standing around pouring their wines, t-
0: chatting with customers. It should be a blast. I can't wait. What did you bring for us to try from the gorge today? Too many things. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, San- is not from the gorge. That's, that's true. That's true. That was more for the summer segment. Right. But, you know, one of my favorite producers that I met when I was, I was down there recently, about a month ago, visiting different producers. And one that really kind of connected to me was this one called Analemma. So that's run by a brilliant winemaker named Stephen. And he... <laughs> You know, kind of one of these interesting wine journeys of like a lot of people where he, he was actually a bicycle tour guide in Italy, kind of got into wine there, then didn't know what he wanted to quite do, got back, decided to go to some wine school, did that, then, you know, fortunately he met some really great people including uh, Christopher Baron of, of Cayuse, went to work there for five years, got really amazing, you know, skills and training, and then started his own project in the Columbia Gorge and his wines are just, you know, super pristine, super interesting, you know, unusual varietals, uh, just doing really fun stuff. So this is, I have a couple of wines from him, but one that might be a good, to quote, breakfast wine. Is this is one from, uh, which has been kind of inspired by the wines of southwest France. I love German the Song. name
3: breakfast wine. <laughs>
5: wow. That's awesome. So this is actually a Petit Monsang. You're an insane again, a, person a, to talk it's to. It's a grape that's found in again, southwest France. Sweet wine, but not too sweet. You'll see. It's like, like I said, a perfect Vouvray where it's just got some acidity.
1: Right, right, and right. right exactly,
5: of, exactly. A little
0: bit of sweetness. Vouvray Blanc. This is what? This is Petit Monsang. Uh, yeah, I don't Petit know that. Petit Oh, Monsang. I don't know that grape very well.
1: Is my memory correct that um, the Columbia Gorge wineries are trying to do more dry farming and stress the vines a little more to get more pronounced
5: varietal character? Great question. So what you see there, and that's another reason why I find it quite inspiring, is you're really seeing almost a revolution in farming there where you have some people who are really leading... I would say, the sustainable, regenerative farming movement in all of Washington and Oregon. Uh-huh. Um, so places like um, Hayu, which is Nate Reddy, uh, Analemma as well. Uh, I have another one here from a, from a great couple called Loop to Loop and some others, Savage Grace, if you know them. So all of them are working, you know, not just organically, but really in an uh, even more sustainable way of trying to regenerate these, these vineyard lands um, and that's, you know, really inspiring. And, it's, you know, again, it's something a little bit different than you're seeing elsewhere. You know, it, it reflects in the wines, too. Mm-hmm. So not only do you have this great farming, and I think any, you know, any real great winemaker will tell you that to make a great wine, you've got to start with great grapes. Right. Uh, so that's where the farming comes in. And then, you know, working with, again, interesting different varietals. You know, I, I love my Washington Syrah but, or Cabernets, but here, you know, you're unusual. I was like this Petit man saying, I, have, I brought a Trousseau also from Analema, uh, From this Loop to Loop winery, we have a Skin Contact Viognier. So just a lot of different variety, another kind of wacky, fun project um, called Little Bastions, and this is a blend of some Dolcetto and some Pinot Noir. So just, you know, again, like a little more unusual stuff and just a lot of fun. uh
0: uh-huh.
1: Would you elaborate? Um, because skin contact is a good buzzword right now. Right, right, right. And okay. just maybe tell people what that contributes so, to
5: the wine. That's also these can also be called quote orange wines, which is you know always gets people thrown for the loop sometimes, and they're thinking that there's actually oranges in the wine, but there's no such thing. It really refers to the color of a wine, and an orange wine or a skin contact white wine is basically a white wine that's made like a red wine. That's not how I like to describe it. It's a red wine color of a red wine actually comes from usually the skin of the grape, not from the inside. And so well, how do you, know, you do that? You, know, you macerate the skin with the juice, and it pulls out the color, pulls out tannins, things like that, But there's no reason you can't do the same thing with a white wine. In fact, it's actually probably the most ancient way of making white wine. There was probably orange wine before there was white wine, because they come from the Caucasus region, Georgia, that area, which has a you know, tremendously long history of this kind of wine production. And it's kind of caught on with a lot of New World winemakers. Um, it's also, you, know, you find it prevalent in parts of Italy, like Friuli, but it's just, you know, it adds texture, adds a different kind of element to the wine. Um, you know, you can do a short skin contact, you can do a long skin contact, so the, the color can change. So this one is, I would still call this more kind of white than orange, but it, um, you know, it just has another element to it.
0: And it's just a little bit, the, I think the orange wine thing is just a little bit confusing, because the wine isn't generally orange. Right. I mean, it is, it yeah. has a deeper... It's just not white. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think it just it really talks is. about a category... Really, is about a category of wine with skin contact. I think they yeah, pick exactly. the color out of the rainbow and you go, oh, it's mean I think
5: I think like anything, it's, it's fine. It's, an, it's another way to approach wine. Um, sometimes it can be a little bit overplayed, perhaps.
0: So we only have a minute left. Food. <coughs> food pairings. Food
5: pairings. Well, we have lots of great food to I have to say. Mike's cooking is amazing. So, you know, we have, you know, all the traditional wine kind of bar fare, sugar, cheeses and whatnot, a lot of small but delicious plates of food. Um, so it really depends on what you're drinking.
0: Uh-huh.
5: What would okay. you have with this wine? Is incredible. With this is breakfast wine. What would you have? I mean, that, that, that blueberry muffin you guys were having before sounded <laughs> <started laughs> pretty good to me. But um, you know, so a classic. You can go. Actually, this can go great with cheeses, like a blue cheese, a roquefort or something like that. True. Um, so you know, it's, gr- it's a great cheese wine. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you know one of the one of the beauties of wine pairing is oftentimes, is, especially in the old world, is drinking the wine with the food from that area. So that's always a yeah, way And by the way, don't go. get
3: caught up into somebody's telling you what to match with your wine.
5: Thank you. Absolutely true.
3: It's a, there's a big word out there. And, you know, if it's not the day that
5: you're having tomato with your white wine, have white it pa- with red wine. And if you want some Moroccan food with your petit monsang, go for it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. My, 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 my favorite. Mean,
0: favorite food wine pairing in my life was a little chavrita, soft ripening goat cheese in Nantes yeah. uh, with a little vouvray. And uh-huh. they uh-huh. were literally meters grown, meters apart. I didn't realize at the time. But... I asked somebody, and they, yeah, they're, they're neighbors, uh, and it was like magic. I, Fresh goat cheese
3: outside of a chateau in the Loire Valley with a Sancerre. Yeah. Sancerre Ooh, was just two miles away. <laughs> it was like
0: Perfection. heaven on earth. Yeah. Okay, go up and visit Rapport Wine Bar at Roy and Broadway on Capitol Hill. It's uh, super fun. Uh, sounds super fun. I haven't been there yet, but I can't wait to go and uh, talk to David Claussen for his favorite... Array of the day, absolutely. So, all right, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for coming in. Up next, potato salad. How did we go from a wine bar to potato salad? <laughs> it's a throwdown, chef. it oh <laughs> <my laughs> to the God. wine bar, it's Cairo Radio. Chef. It's the hot stove Fill it up and bring it right back Solid potato salad And let no gag gag. We're back in the hot stove kitchen on Cairo Radio <laughs> Hey Pamela We were just hey, at this Tom. delicious wine bar Up on Capitol Hill called Rapport Yes And now we're going to your house for supper You are uh, And it turns out all we're having is potato salad <laughs> We heard, we heard mm-hmm. the theme was potato salad It is <laughs> That is because
1: there's an opportunity with potatoes as a vehicle to do about anything you want. Uh And I stumbled across a really energetic recipe that brings all of my favorite things together. So it's it's got anchovies. (laughs) It's got anchovies. (laughs) It's got red peppers. And it's got onions. And it's all done on the grill. Really? The potatoes, of course, you have to start with a little bit of a boil, and you're leaving them in their skin. And then, like the fabulous Lola ones, you do a little smush uh-huh. and olive oil drench and on the grill. But the ingredients for this salad are, I recommend baby Yukon's, salt, unseasoned rice vinegar, fish sauce with honey. There's the anchovies. Uh, uh Yep olive oil, of course, red Fresno chilies, red onion, garlic cloves, basil leaves, and sesame seed. Mm -hmm. And everything gets its own marinade and then a timing on the grill for it to get charred. So what attracts me to this is the texture.
3: So wait, what goes on the the grill?
1: All the the vegetables, the onions, the the chilies, the 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 potatoes.
0: Potatoes? Yes. Okay. After, yeah. they're, after they're boiled. After you, they're boiled. You smash them, and then you put the little pancake on the grill. Exactly. Okay. And that's why. That'll what pick I, up smoke fast yeah. when, you, when you do that. Yes. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. But I just think that you could, it's a demonstration that you could use it as a base of an entire meal.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: So then you uh, and just build put a it from steak or a or yeah. grilled shrimp yeah. on top or, in your case, tofu. Or, yeah. Yeah. Huh. No, or I, tofu my, or in, pork. In, in, in my guess, it would be
3: goat cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Last okay, night, let's
0: give some credit where credits due. Where did you get
1: this recipe? This is Molly Baz. Uh, she was at Bon Appetit. Now she has her own uh, super good club okay. recipe club. And a, and a great cookbook. But I just thought I would throw that out and see if you guys could come up with anything
0: better for a potato salad. Well, I don't know that I would come up with anything better. That sounds awesome.
3: I, no, I mean, that's, that sounds like a very nice, different potato salad. So I would definitely try that for
0: sure. Cause that's... I have done grilled potatoes, sliced uh, about eighth inch thick, cooked to order, without having to do the pre-boil. Uh, on the, on the grill, and they work fine. You just have to go indirect, and you put the lid on, so you're kind of baking your potato right, right. on the grill, so you don't have to do the two different heat sources, mm-hmm. which I think would make it a little bit easier. I don't know. I mean, I think it would pick up the smoke the same way, uh, but it would fall apart less on the grill than a smashed...
1: Yeah, you have to be re- really careful because I uh, remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about Indonesian satays, yeah. Uh that Annie was inspired by. But they, I was doing the mushrooms, oyster mushrooms, uh-huh. and they said cook them for- first and then thread them onto your skewer with the marinade. Completely disintegrated. Yeah, yeah. No. It was, it was like, so I think the balance of uh, I usually, when I'm doing Onions on the grill, I usually do blanch them. Would you? You do? No. Never. Never? Okay, so
3: you... I always put my well, onions... When they're full
0: of water. They kind of blanch themselves in a funny and way. And they caramelize you know, they, they quickly, steam too. Up. yeah. Mm.
3: Onions is one of those, to me, what I like to do with my onions is when they come off the grill, they're still pretty crunchy, and I put them in a Pyrex pan and cover them with plastic wrap, and that keeps them cooking. So by the time you sit down for dinner, they're still it's hot. It's the same thing as steaming they're them. they're softened yeah. down, mm-hmm. and they're really... Palatable.
0: You know what else? Uh, you know, you, you talked about the Fresno red peppers or the Fresno chilies. I think sometimes people, you know, they'll get a char on there and blacken the skin a bit. To me, don't take the blackened skin out. To me, oh, it's I delicious. It. And yeah. It adds color, texture, and flavor. For and sure. so uh, sometimes we overpeel our charred vegetables. Yeah. It's just Agreed. like I said on eggplant, right? So, yeah, eat eat the char. Yeah, eat the char. So
3: I'm all uh, about the roasted red peppers. Because I do that often in my salads. And uh, potato salad for me would be blanched potatoes. Never grilled them before. Like potatoes a potatoes idea. you start with? No, 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 no. Just blanched. Oh, blanched potatoes. Blanched okay. potatoes. And then cut them in you know, sizable pieces that are palatable. You know, I don't like when somebody makes a potato salad with potatoes that are this big or that yeah. are, you know,
0: Baseball big, size. bigger
3: than your mouth. Yeah. It's not attention to oh, how every, you eat.
0: Every class of potato salad is made with russet potatoes, like our mom's all made them with russets. They didn't have the choice of the Yukons at the time. So.
3: Mm-hmm. so smaller dice, not small like tiny, but, you know, smaller cubes. And uh, um, to me, I like, I like to do chopped shallots, uh, lots of chopped chives because chives Let's are in stop like stop
0: right there for a second, Chef. You always use shallots. Is there a reason, like, instead of white or red onion, you're using shallots? Are they just milder?
3: I just like the sweetness and the flavor. What I like about the shallots is I can use them raw. If I use red onion, I'm going to use them much more sparingly because it's a bigger mouthful of taste. And most likely if I use onion, I would put them on the grill and good them char. Right, okay. Because that's a different context, different flavor. But I'm talking all, you know, in the kitchen, chopped chives, chopped shallots, and um, roasted red peppers because I love that flavor in the potato salad. And instead of mayonnaise, I would use a Dijon mustard, a lemon juice, and olive oil dressing kind of idea, where I would mix the whole thing together and let it
1: macerate for a few hours, and all room temp, because I hate cold potato salad. Oh, cold potato salad is the worst. Oh. But that's the reason to go to oil, I think, uh, an oil dressing instead of a mayonnaise. Yeah. So then you can say comfortably... Let it come to room temp right. and not kill your guests. Oil, not food. having
0: the eggs at mayonnaise has in it. Yeah, well, yeah. Saying, and, so. and
3: the rice vinegar, if adjustment needs to be made where it's not sour enough, a little drizzle of rice vinegar. That's how I would do my potato salad most of the time because it's simple enough, not too many ingredients. And you can do, I mean, if you have leftover bacon from breakfast, let's say you have a few strips cooked, dice that, put it in your potato salad. If you have a grilled steak, you just slice the steak. Use that with that. You, so many things can go with it. The other thing is a piece of cooked salmon, for example. You know, you have one piece left in the fridge. You crumble it into your potato salad, and that makes a wonderful salmon potato salad.
0: Tom, what's your potato salad? Well, I loved my mother's German potato salad, which is that kind of warm, sweet, and sour with ah. bacon potato salad. But I'm actually I'm loving the recipe you had. It, it clicks off all some of my favorite boxes. One is to grill. Uh, the fish sauce is uh, something that people freak out about in a funny way, but it's a secret ingredient. It's new mommy ingredient. You don't recognize that there's fish sauce in there. It's just that, that kind of pungency kind of blends into whatever you're making. And then uh, the other thing you added that I loved on that recipe was the whole fresh herbs, big sprigs of dill and basil and parsley and all the soft herbs, tarragon. People say, I hate tarragon. But you put it into a salad like this, you don't even... Doesn't Wait, stand minute, out on its own. How do you hate tarragon? I mean, a lot of people hate tarragon; they think it's soapy, like cilantro. Oh, well, uh, that's a but, different uh, thing. I, a, I love it, and it, on its own, it's different, right? But uh, when you blend it with all this other stuff in an herb, a fresh herb mix, yeah, it's it, brilliant. Yeah, it is really lovely. So, I think that that salad idea is the bomb. I really do. Yeah. The and other
1: one that that caught my attention was a Korean twist. Which was small red onion, the Persian cucumbers, which I love with potatoes. Like
0: pearl onion? Are you saying? Per, no, uh,
1: the Persian cucumber. Yeah, but you said small red onion. Yeah, just fine. no, just, oh, just small, a small, small dice, okay, small okay. dice, uh, small dice, carrot, salt. This one is based in russets, um, egg, corn kernels. Good idea. Is it it hard-boiled? Hard-boiled. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that Um, in my potato salad. This does have a mayonnaise dressing with uh, rice vinegar, a little bit of sugar, and they want a strong yellow mustard, which I I don't have that in my cupboard.
3: (laughs) Disharves a sort
0: of yellow. I I don't have that in
3: my
1: cupboard either.
0: (laughs) You know, you often see that potato salad when you go to a Korean barbecue restaurant. Yes. I, I always forget the name of all the little dishes that come around. Banchan, ban yeah, exactly. And that potato salad that you're describing yeah. is often one of the banchan on the table that's served with the barbecue.
1: So that that would be the close second to the grilled version. Or the third one was using all Caesar salad dressing uh-huh. accompaniments on your potato, like a yeah. Caesar potato. Yeah. Yeah. Enough, yeah, that would be really good. That's, that's good. That's a good idea.
3: Yeah. I like that. Do you have M- any, gui-
1: any guidance if you're doing it a, a, a traditional potato salad on cooking and chilling your potatoes so that they don't get mushy and they kind of keep their nice shape from my the My guidance th- is good. From for the desk.
3: Okay. <laughs> no, Mike, g- just use the right type of potatoes. There are different types of potatoes. Some of them are a lot more starchy and much more giving. When you cook a potato, if you blanch it, after one minute of boiling, you turn down the heat so it's boiling very slowly. If you see the potato breaking apart, that's already a no-no. It's too late
0: too late. Make mashed potatoes. <laughs> Make mashed potatoes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> because it's a potato that's too starchy that's made to be mushed. That, I think that in my history, that, that's what I've screwed up potato salads the most is using an overcooked potato. Yeah. When we
0: come back, it's time for Rub With Love, Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia. Brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Shop. on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. He eats potatoes. He eats potatoes.
2: Eat potatoes, we all eat eat
0: potatoes. Potatoes. P-O-T-A-T-O. Potatoes. You just get those plain potatoes. To your it's time for the last segment of this weekend's Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Hot Stove Society Radio Show. Uh, Rub with Love, Food for Thought, Tasty, or Trivia is brought to you by our Dexterious. I love when you add new adjectives. A mm-hmm. uh, line of rubs and spices and sauces that will open your options for creating new flavor profiles. We have an exciting limited offer, All-Star Rub. You know, that's coming up this week, All-Star Rub. Oh. Uh, it's, uh, we have just a, a few jars, actually a few cases left of our All-Star Rub pop-up to celebrate this week's baseball festivities. If you want to try a jar, we're still selling it here at the Hot Stove. We're selling it down at Seatown, our restaurant in the Pike Place Market area. And you can find it out at the Ballard Warehouse. Uh, Certainly, Made in Washington stores are featuring it. All of our favorites, like Met Market, Town & Country Markets, PCC, all carry um, our rub line and sauces. It's some sort or another QFC Anybody who's cool carries our product line, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Pamela, how do we play the game? And our, I know our winner uh, is going to get a little spree in our gift shop for three different spice rubs uh, on, based upon her victory.
1: Mar- Mary and Scott, I think, are both going to get to take some rub home. Now, that's a little. That's uh, a little I know. Impressive. It's your money, not well, mine, Obviously, you're so. leaving the
0: show because you're trying to give away the house.
1: <laughs> so, we love that they jumped up to the mic. And there's a theme today potatoes, blueberries, and butter. So, where's th- the butter come in? Uh, yeah. My, uh, it's in my potato, blueberry, the and Together, that sounds delicious. But each of the contestants are going to get five questions. And there's going to be a winner. Would you like to start, Chef? Absolutely. Uh, true or false? The potato is about 80% water and 20% solids. False. It's true. <laughs> uh Which might uh, lead you to think about this next question, which is multiple choice. An 8-ounce baked or boiled potato has approximately how many calories? 50, 100, or 300 80. <laughs> it wasn't one of the multiple choices, but... <laughs> well, I'm yes, just making sure. up my own. Yes, okay. You're, we're giving it to you because that's closer. It's a, usually about 100 oh calories. People think they're highly caloric when, in fact, they're not because they're mostly water. True or false? The blueberry is one of the only foods that is truly naturally blue in color. The uh, pigment that gives blueberries their distinctive color called anthocyanins is the same compound that provides the blueberries amazing health benefits. Is this true or false? False. (laughs) <laughs> it's true. Just because you ask me. <laughs> it's, See? It's true. I mean, <laughs> it's funny. True or false?
0: I believe you're over at this point. True. is that right?
1: Butter. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> but I'll read the question anyway. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, butter was once so ingrained in Scandinavian culture that the 11th century Norwegian king Sven Newsen demanded each of his subjects provide him a bucket of butter as tax annually and it is true i would believe it's true yeah no i yeah. Would believe that yeah. yeah you got that one and finally what ingredient makes a souffle rise egg white
0: yay nice job chef way to come back strong nice, nice safety
1: <laughs> i should have five out of five but i got three out of five all right that's a good start you too. All right, Mary,
3: Mary and
0: Scott. Scott. Mary was part of our Mother's Day contest, if I'm not mistaken. What was your stove picture?
4: Uh, it was the showing that I had this power burner on my stove, which ah. was my favorite thing because I can use my wok on it. Yeah, it was awesome yeah. feature.
1: Uh, number one, the average American eats about 120 pounds of potatoes per year. Do the Germans eat more or less than that?
4: I'd say they eat more.
1: Yeah, Germans eat about (laughs) twice as much as we do of potatoes. They are
0: potato lovers. Two hundred forty pounds. Have you ever heard of a German potato salad? Come on. Number two,
1: true or false? In nineteen seventy-four, an Englishman named Eric Jenkins grew three hundred and seventy pounds of potatoes from one plant. True. True. It is exactly true. And moving on to blueberries. Uh, blueberries, true or false? Blueberries were called star fruits by North American indig- indigenous peoples because of the five-pointed star shape that is formed at the blossom end of the berry.
4: That sounds true. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it is true. I would say That's yes. a pretty name for a blueberry. Yeah. Multiple choice. In this country, in ancient times, butter was swallowed to soothe sore throats. More than a dairy-forward cough drop, these people also rubbed it butter on their aching joints. Was this in India, Ghana, or Italy? I'm guessing India. It was the Italians that started ah. this. No way. Butter, yeah. See, it's funny. No that would way. have been my last
3: guess. I
0: know.
1: Yeah. Oh. And five. Um, true or false, there is no actual... Butter in the motor oil like substance that cost playing as movie theater butter. True. True. Oh. That's,
0: an that's a, a terrific question. Five. Four out of five. Good job.
1: Yeah. All right. Marion
0: Scott, pull to the lead.
1: <laughs> Love it.
0: Okay, Tom. Good job.
1: Tom Douglas.
0: I'm our only hope, Chef.
1: You're the pogut gotcha of the day, how's that? True or false. Potatoes produce more food per unit of water than any other major crop and are up to seven times more efficient
0: in using water than cereals. Ah, boy, we grow a lot of potatoes in this state, and we use a lot of water to do it, so I'm going to say even that, yes. True. Yeah. True or false?
1: Since the early 1960s, the growth in potato production area has rapidly overtaken all other food crops in developing countries
0: in developing countries absolutely
1: it's true yeah multiple choice how many calories does one large handful about a half cup of juicy blueberries contain would it be 44 calories 200 calories or 350 calories i've got to go with 44 correct this one's hard Ba- but Terry will be able to help you. Back in the 15th century, the Catholic Church banned its followers from eating butter during the 40 days of
0: Lent. That's why I'm a former Catholic.
1: However, Catholics could pay a fee to the church if they wanted to free themselves from the butter ban entirely. So that sounds many, like the Catholic Church. So many French Catholics opted to give money rather than forego butter that the revenue generated from the Lent butter fees became a substantial funding source for which cathedral?
0: Notre Dame. <laughs> voilà!
1: Notre Dame de Paris. Uh, France Rouen Cathedral. Uh, the Rouen Cathedral is known colloquially oh, as whoa. the Butter Tower. Because it's in the
3: capital of Normandy.
1: Yeah. Oh, the butter is How was I supposed to know that?
3: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't even know that. Yeah.
1: Never heard but that, you, but Never heard you heard you that story. No, I know the cathedral, yeah. yeah. And finally, Socorat is the name given to the crusty, crispy bottom of which famous Spanish
0: dish? hi
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Thank you so That's... much. Enjoy the stroll through our gift shop as the winners today. We appreciate both Scott Tom, and Tom, you get four out of find. That's pretty good. If you want to be part of the show, you can join the community on YouTube Live at Tom Douglas & Co. Or buy a ticket to join us in the studio at hotstovesociety.com. The show is produced by uh, Pam Hinckley. Sean McFadden is our technical wizard. And our talented editor at Cairo is Sean. Please don't call me Del Torre. Also, remember if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show in Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app.
3: Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
0: Potato chips. How my mouth does drip. Potato chips. How my mouth does drip.